It's fair to say that COVID-19 and the stop-start global economy have wreaked havoc on businesses of all sizes in 2020. As organisations look for new ways of working, new revenue streams and innovative ways of getting back to some form of normal, the question of agility comes into sharpened focus. I'm Steve Dunn from Workday and on today's show I'm delighted to be joined by Craig Crawford, a digital transformation strategist and the founderpreneur of Crawford IT. We'll be chatting about the concept of agility and what that really means in 2020, as well as how business leaders can make it real at a time when they've got a billion other priorities. Craig, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me. It's fun to be here. I, I wanted to start, if, if I could, um, by talking a little bit about your background. And we've got a lot of interesting guests that we get on the Workday podcast. And I know your career is uh, certainly no different. Could you tell us a bit about what you know, your role in the fashion industry and how that's led you to, to where you are today? Sure. It's not been straight and narrow, that's for sure. I um, I started my career as a textile designer for The Gap. So I started in design, but way back when, 25, nearly 30 years ago, we used systems, we used computers. So I had to learn Unix operating language in order to run a silicon graphics computer to design. And I think I was pr- pretty much bitten by the technology bug from that point forward. I, I was one of six people to start the product development offices for Old Navy. And I did that because I believed in the product. I believed in the premise of the, of the, of the product as well. Great design uh, at the time for $22 or less. But I was also excited because I was allowed to set up all the technology used to design product within that new startup within the gap. I left there and joined a company called Liz Claiborne. And I was there for about 10 years. Liz Claiborne was in acquisition mode. And at Liz, we continued to buy new brands. So for 10 years, um, I led a small team of of 10. We were part of IT, but we we resided in the design area. We work with marketing and all the creative people and all of the designers, whether they were textile designers or product developers or product designers, putting in systems to design textiles, to design color, to design fabric, and then transmit those. And so traveled around the world, putting in systems on the manufacturing side as well. So I understand supply chain truly end to end. Started my own consultancy in the United States, worked with a tiny little startup named Tori Birch, helped her set up um, their design systems, and then moved from that, uh, landed Burberry as a client. Uh, I had worked with Angela Ahrens, and so that took me to London. And that was supposed to be six months. And 13 years later, I'm a citizen. I led the digital transformation at Burberry for seven years. I left when Angela left and started my consultancy in the UK. So I now work with fashion brands globally, um, many of them European, but also still um, America, which is why I'm, I'm back here now. It's been quite a 2020, you know, from a business perspective, you know, what are your views on on how businesses have reacted to, to such a difficult time? And I, I mean that from both a a technology and an organizational standpoint as well. It came at us in waves, didn't it? First, we were concerned about being able to get inventory, right, and to be able to get our product and keeping supply chain operations going because many of us produce globally, and it started uh, to affect the East first. Um, So people that I know who work in supply chain were reacting to that and trying to keep uh, operations going during a very difficult time. And, and, and that was interesting, uh, even dividing the workforce into different shifts, either alternating you know, different days, people working on different floors within the building, social distancing, to assure us that the product was coming. And then the product did come, and then we shut down. <laughs> we shut down retail, so we couldn't do anything with the product once we had it. So it was just sort of like, ah, for everybody. 
I think that what we have had to do very quickly, though, is embrace technology. And we've had to, we've done it, right? It's forced us to, to, to have teleconferencing. It's for, this is how families were able to stay together. So age is no longer a barrier to technology. And when we find use for technology, when it makes our lives, uh, make, adds purpose and makes it useful to us, we use it. And that's exactly what, what we've been able to do. We're still dealing with markets, you know, runway shows not happening, markets now being done virtually. How do we sell without samples? Do we actually need to do that? So as, as fashion brands, from my perspective, as fashion brands, we've looked across all the different aspects and how can we use technology to still keep the business going. But I, I work with other clients too. I do some work in the fast-moving consumer goods industry and in the hospitality industry. And in hospitality, it's been very interesting, um, to say the least. Challenging is hard. Let's just call it what it is. It's been hard. And so they've had to do things like click and collect, which before, unless they had takeout service or you drove up and, and, and were able to get your food at a drive-in window, that was a brand new operational change. And with each of those, we, we have, we've had to turn and do things differently. We may still be making food, but now we have to package it and we have to have it ready and we have to keep it warm. And so it's not going to the table, it's going to the car, for example. How do we allow people to order from table when we reopen? So all of these things now, and in, in the UK, even even pubs where you know you go to the bar to order are now doing tableside service, and that's operationally challenging. So sometimes the technology is there um, and not so hard to use. It's operationally how do we adapt to that? That's challenging across any industry, I think. Yeah, no, you you make some good points, particularly around the, the hospitality, which you know that's a. Uh you know, a whole level of, of adaptation that's, that's had to take place, which I think leads me into very neatly into the next question. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> to say that, I know you, you, uh, you kind of, you quote Darwin quite a lot on your, on your website. And there's a particular one that caught my eye, which is, you know, the, it's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent that survives. It's the one that's most adaptable to change. And I thought that was, you know, pretty key and, and you know, quite pertinent in the world that we're living in today, because, you know, what do we mean by ad adaptability and what should businesses be thinking about when they, when they look at that area of, of the way they operate? There's a number of things to consider here. And, and I do feel very strongly um, that if we aren't agile and we don't adapt, we, we won't survive. And I think we see that particularly in the field I grew up in. We're seeing a lot of department stores go under. We're seeing brands go under. And we're even seeing that in the hospitality space as well a well-known uh, food franchise and a couple of franchises in the United Kingdom have folded as a result of this. And it seems sort of counterintuitive why. But if you aren't able to look at what's happening and think about how you can embrace that, and it's really hard, we spend a lot of time on tactical solutions, right? We spend a lot of times reacting to the market and it's what we have to do. But at the same time, we need to keep our strategic goals in mind. And the goals aren't always just to make money. Yes, this is commerce and we're there to do that. But if you're serving food, you're, you're providing people with nourishment, you're providing people with a bit of a break, relaxation, family time, community, all of these things are go around food. Otherwise, you know, you could just grab and go a sandwich somewhere. So I think... It's important to remember who you are and why you're doing what you're doing, and then look at how does your behavior change based on forces that you can't control. You know, we've in my lifetime we've had SARS, we've had uh, the volcanic disruption uh, in 
in Iceland that grounded planes and air travel for a while, you know, with the California fires. I mean, we've had natural disasters, earthquakes, my goodness, all over. So we're, we're not just looking at illness. It's it's fundamentally, you know, tropical storms, hurricanes. It, it, we're always dealing with crisis, to be quite honest. And it's the ability to look at that and say, can I shift manufacturing or can I understand how the customer is changing, what their values are now? You know, product assortments are really tricky in my world now um, because people have been not going out. Girls don't need dresses and boys don't need suits, right? And the, the move towards casual wear and softer clothing because we're sitting more. Did you get your product assortment right? Do you understand what's happening in terms of consumer choice and desire and purchasing power and ways of purchasing? So, so consumer values have shifted very, very quickly. And we have to be in tune with those. And in my industry or the industry that I come from, I don't own it, but I come from it and grew up here. We look at historically a spend analysis. We can't do that this year. We can't look at this year's numbers and say, how are we going to project? What else are we going to offer on the market? What else are we going to edit down? We have to look at data. We have to look at things very, very differently now than we did in the past. I use the word data because it is data, but a more friendly word, a word we understand more just being informed. And we look at what our options are, and then we look at how we can adapt how we work. So our operations. So it's not just looking at technical solutions. It's looking at operations. And then it's saying, wow, will these things allow us to actually move in a better and a more efficient strategic way, not just a tactical way? So, so I'll give you an example. We'll, we'll put in PPE at stores as we reopen. We put PPE in at restaurants and bars as we reopen. And now we know people have to sit so far apart. We know they have to stand so far apart. And, and we'll allow them to order at table and have table side service. Well, why wouldn't we look at allowing them to, to take that one step further? Why wouldn't we allow them to order um, as they're driving in? Why wouldn't we allow them in stores as we are, are monitoring, putting in technology to monitor that this social distancing is happening? Why aren't we looking at that strategically and understanding what they're engaged with in the store? What visual merchandising tools or displays are they looking at? And what tools do we have to monitor that? All in a uh, GDPR environment, of course, and anonymously. But not, and this goes well beyond, say, footfall and heat maps, right? But to really understand what product people are engaging with. So these systems that we're looking at now that are, you know, quick to implement, let's get these things done because we've got to make sure we're compliant from a health perspective, actually allow us to understand more about behavior in a physical environment. And then when we Mary, Mary, M-A-R-R-Y, when we marry, I'm from Virginia, so my my English is terrible. <laughs> so when we marry the data from our digital footprint, what are we looking at on our phones? What websites are we going to? What social media are we engaging with? And when we move that then to how did that impact my store? How did I, how did, how did someone go into that store? Did they go look at that product? Why did they buy something different? That's a very different holistic picture of that customer and understanding their behavior. And so that means being agile in reviewing this information, right? Click and Collect did this to us, right? If people wanted, and then endless aisle. So in my world, the ability to be able to buy something and pick it up in store. Well, that had all kinds of implications for a store. That turned the store into a distribution center. 
that was before COVID. And so, you know, I work with clients who, well, how do we fulfill this? How do we do this? And then endless aisle looking at your inventory and store to fulfill warehouse. E-commerce is 25 years old, right? So we set it up as another store. Well, now it's much larger than the store. It's, it's the flagship to the store. It is the flagship store, right? And therefore, we may sell more in that channel. We may not, but we need to be able to see all inventory. Well, if someone returns something that's damaged and someone puts that in the system as sellable, then uh, your endless aisle doesn't know that and you end up with a problem that you don't have inventory to fulfill. So thinking operationally through all these things, and that, quite frankly, can't and shouldn't happen in the boardroom and not even at the C-suite, right? You've got to get the people on the ground involved. They've got to tell you what their challenges are. And also, they'll tell you what some opportunities are. And one of the things that we did quite successfully at Burberry was connecting internally a collaborative dashboard. We we used a, a Salesforce product. I'm technology agnostic, but at Burberry, you know, there's a lot now. There's Facebook for work. There's Slack. There's Chatter from Salesforce. So it doesn't have to be any any one of these. But allowing strategic objectives to cascade to people who are on the ground, but also giving them an opportunity to talk back, to have a dialogue, which is, by the way, what we need to do with our customers as well. But digital on the inside and digital on the outside allow us to be as agile as we can. We hire people to think. And unfortunately, we don't let them do that a lot at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you, you make some great points about you know, agility and adaptability. And I'm, I'm guessing that for somebody who's involved in digital transformation for, you know, for a good three decades, I think you, you said at the top of the call, you've seen pretty much the good, the bad and, and the ugly from, from, from that perspective, you know, and, but, you know, just thinking about some of the examples that you've just given there, I mean, you know, nobody wants to fail at the digital transformation. Nobody wants to get it wrong. So, you know, what do you think is kind of holding organizations back? Is it, is it, is it a lack of budget? Is it, you know, is it a fear of failure and, or is it an old style management culture? Or is, it, is it a mixture of all of them? You know, what, what's stopping them? Is it technology, culture? What's the, what's the biggest thing that you see? I think the biggest thing that stops us as human beings is fear. I mean, I don't just quote Darwin. I quote Buddha too, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty funny. But Buddha says all human action, all human behavior can be distilled down to one of two emotions, love or fear. Everything that we do is either out of the fear space or the love space. And oftentimes, we operate out of the fear space. Um, and when we, in my industry, where we're, we're passionate about what we do, um, you know, we, people buy consumer goods based on an emotional response. So we want to create that emotional response when we create product. We're passionate about it but we're also afraid we won't be successful. There are a lot of moving parts. There are lots and lots of tiny details in the fashion industry to link end to end. When you really look at where it starts as a fiber, moving it all the way through to a finished good, and then now looking at how do you recycle um, and still be sustainable across all of that. So the shelf life of the product and the birth of the product is complicated, and then you layer emotion into that. We've been quite successful in figuring out how to do that around the industrial age time, but we haven't evolved since. And now technology is allowing us to look at reusing fibers. It's allowing us to look at manufacturing on demand. It's allowing us to look at changing the timeline. It's allowing us to look at how we advertise and how we connect with consumers. And all of that means some of the things we have been doing in the past we don't need to do. 
But we have that question, will we be successful? And so there's, how do we parallel track? Can we do both? And there's just, you know, sometimes you just have to feel the fear and do it. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You're still one step further along in the journey than just being paralyzed. So culture is part of it. We had a unique culture at Burberry where we were a can-do organization. We understood commercial decisions and creative decisions were balanced. We talked about a right brain, left brain culture. Um, in fact, I, I got my nickname being the right brain in IT because I was pretty much surrounded by left brain linear thinkers, which are terribly important to technology and to manufacturing, right? You, you've got to have that, not that free association when you're manufacturing hundreds of thousands of garments or products. So there's a balance of all of that. And organizations need to look at their culture. If you don't have culture by design, you kind of have chaos. And a lot of brands don't think about, many do, many do think about the culture, but but some don't. And so I, I think it's a mix of all of that. And then, you know, you've, you've also got people that are just scared of losing their jobs. And that doesn't mean you, when I was at Gap, I was asked to teach at Parsons, which I did, um, because textile artists thought they were going to lose their jobs to computers. They were afraid they were going to lose their job to technology. They didn't lose their job. What they found out was it made their job much easier. It didn't take the creativity away. Systems didn't design product. But what they did was allow them to translate what their ideas were into something that was manufacturable and to look at the manufacturing nuances, the production nuances. Then the, then people who were afraid moved into the love space. They loved it. They didn't have to repaint things. They didn't have to layer things and acetate on top of something. They could actually you know, do lots of versions and lots of ideas of things once they mastered the skills that they needed to with the system. And that hasn't stopped. We're still doing that now on product in the 3D space. We're, we're, we're playing with that not playing, we're successfully implementing. And that type of technology has allowed us to go direct to consumer with product that hasn't been manufactured yet, so we can pre-order. It's also allowing us now during this COVID lockdown or easing up of restrictions or locking down of restrictions, depending upon what country you live in. And I spend my time in two. Nobody's gotten it right yet. I know that. But we are now able to to create you know, virtual markets. We're able to go to uh, wholesale uh, showroom selling, for example. It's complex, but the answer is it's a bit of all of it. I think it's a bit mostly distilling it down to just being afraid. And then if you build a culture based on fear, your company will always behave that way. But if you build a culture based on love and what we want to do and how we are passionate about what we do and why we want to and why and why are we doing what we're doing, then we, are, we will find ourselves coming up with all sorts of ideas that only a collective group of smart uh, and passionate people can do. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really lovely way of looking at it, and it's uh, it's very true. You look at the, some of the most creative and innovative you know, businesses in the world, and they've got some very similar characteristics and traits in common. And Yeah, and you, um, I mean, you gave some great examples already, but, I mean, agility is obviously something we talk a lot about here at Workday, but you know, how do you take something like agility, which in many forms has become a bit of a buzzword, hasn't it? And, and make it real for technology leaders. So, you know, yeah. if you're sitting in a room with yeah. a particular client, you know, how do you get the message across so they can actually go out there and embark on projects to change the way the business operates? It's like digital transformation. It's becoming um, a, a cliche when people talk about being agile. And then there's agile methodology within IT, right? So how you actually build something. And I've worked with IT executives who've, who literally said agile, agile technology or agile development is a euphemism for chaos. And it's not. 
It's not. But everything cannot be built with agile methodology. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk to this from a tech question, but then I'm going to flip over in terms of agile behavior as well. Agile methodology in a tech environment only works when the code that you create is 100% clean. And that, you know, I worked with a very smart individual who said, that's our insurance. We bake the insurance in so that as the code is done, it is pure. And I know that's already not the way waterfall often happens. Waterfall often builds in sort of a mop-up where we'll get 80% right and then we'll fix the other stuff in new releases. But when you put in very heavy lifting ERP systems, you have to use traditional waterfall. You don't have to, but using traditional waterfall methodology to develop and implement is tried and true and is necessary when there's so many moving parts. Now, we're at a space in time where some of these big ERP solutions can be software as a service. We're also looking at cloud. Clearly, I can't believe I'm talking about that, but it's still people are moving their ERP solutions to cloud. So yeah. some of these um, traditional ways of working are being challenged by new technology foundations and platforms. So platforms as a service, software as a service, these subscription models do allow us to work very differently. But behind the scenes, many of these things are built in a waterfall method. Agile allows the end user to be part of the process. And that means what they thought they wanted once they see it in their hands could be actually what they did want, or they have the opportunity to influence it. But agility in the development of technology is is one way of, of, of answering a question and looking at that. It, it also embraces operational behavior, how we behave at work, right? So I remember when we we were looking at pricing and as we moved our model from wholesale to direct to consumer at Burberry, we also were looking at what styles would be replenishment, what would always be in stock. And these were early days when Burberry was behaving like a, a global brand uh, under Angela. But pricing had always been done at a certain point before market. And I remember as we introduced moving way forward in, in my course of career there, and we were looking at um, selling from digital catalogs, we, we were having challenges with product not showing up in that catalog. And it wasn't showing up in the catalog because it didn't have price attached to it. And in order to sell it, it needed a price. So that was a requirement. And I remember talking to the pricing team and they were walking me through how they did pricing. And I said, but we've moved to a replenishment model where we've got 60% of our product is the goal that will be always be in store. Why isn't that priced already? I mean, I know every season we use a different conversion, a currency conversion table because we're a global brand. You have to generate global pricing, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of complication behind it. It's not just say this is always going to be 100 pounds and go. But at the beginning of the season, why aren't we looking at that and then just reapplying pricing right now so that when you're into that two, three, four weeks before market, you're wildly trying to assign product, you're all a price to product. You're only doing that to the product that's new. And it was just like you could have heard a pen drop. And then the, the woman in charge of pricing said to me, oh, my God, I never thought about that. You've just saved my team so much work. Why didn't we think of that? But it was because we were used to just getting things through certain gates. And so we need to evaluate, do we even need these gates? Yes, we do. We do understand that. But are they the right gates? So what are the operational changes? Not just we make more money or we get more transparency to what's happening, but can we actually change what we're doing? And so we start having this inquisitive behavior and we start to assess, well, why are we doing things like that? Well, we're doing it based on 
previous requirements. But now we we don't have to do that. And so allowing us to be agile around our behavior and about thinking how to do things differently. And again, some of that comes from the people on the ground, not the people in headquarters. So opening that dialogue up is key and allowing everyone to, to participate. And then we're able to think differently and to move differently across any type of product that we're creating and selling and marketing. You know, in, in the beauty industry, many of the leaders in digital transformation are looking at trends across social media, not because they're then going to develop product based on those trends, but instead they develop advertising campaigns. So if in the summertime people are posting pink drinks and it is a huge trend, everyone wants a pink cocktail or a pink lemonade or what have you, then their advertising campaigns will show pink makeup assortments or pink hair color. And the sales are going up exponentially because they're showing people how to translate the color of choice into product they already have. So that's thinking very differently about how you market, how you create new campaigns. So it's it's quite uh, interesting when you look at it on and question yourself, why are, are we doing that? Are we doing enough of that? Now, that doesn't mean being disruptive to the point of just mixing it all up because you're, you want, you're trying to. Lean manufacturing, there's all sorts of examples of how we can embrace this and do this and weigh data and technology into operational behavior so that we are, in fact, quite agile in what we do. And remember, we're going to change it again. Because it goes back to evolution, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Now, that's, that makes perfect sense. What are you seeing in terms of heading towards an omni-channel world or the death of bricks and mortar that we hear a lot about in the press? What's, what's really happening in retail and how has it been impacted by the, the global outbreak? Yeah, I don't think anything's, I don't think bricks and mortar is dying. I think that it's evolving. I think we have too many stores to begin with, not just brands. I mean, too many physical stores often. I think we're all time poor. So let's, if we take COVID out of the equation, we were already moving towards a browse online and go into store environment or scenario, right? There are so many more touch points today for a consumer to interact with your brand that are outside of any channel that we even thought of just five, 10 years ago, right? E-commerce is only 25 years old, as I said before. So when you think about Instagram, you know, we're very, very, very lucky. I worked at Burberry in a very rarefied environment. We had speaker series and we came, we brought all sorts of people in from other industries to talk to us and to inspire us. And we actually had the founder of Instagram come in and, and he was just the founder of Instagram. And then by the time he came to speak to us, you know, he was the billionaire who had sold it to Facebook. And that's a great example of something that was built just to help people take photographs and be good photographers. And that is now a commercial platform that every brand has on their tick list, right? I have to be on Instagram. I need to be able to buy and sell or sell rather on Instagram. It's something I have to do. That wasn't why it was built, right? That wasn't that wasn't the purpose of of Instagram, and yet we've looked at why at how people have used the technology, and because they're looking at it, then shouldn't brands have a presence? Presence, and that's what we've done. So there are so many touch points for consumers. To me, the thing we need to think about is the brand. And we used to say at Burberry, the flagship store is the website, and I still still go into brands who don't understand that. Everything that we sell has to be online. You may not sell it online, but you need to show it because digital is discovery and people want to look at it and understand what you offer. 
they may want to go into the store. They may want to try it on. They may want to touch it. They may want to just see it and see what other options are because they didn't look through the website for everything. It could be a social media touch point that brings them in, right? It could be a friend telling them something that takes them in. All of these interactions with brands drive people into to purchase, but it also drives us into, into stores. So I look at it as sort of one channel. A sale for the brand is a sale for the brand. And you need to be able to do that easily across digital environments, but you need to be able to do that in physical environments. Um, and we need to look at stores differently because people want experience. We're social animals. We don't want to just stare at a screen and do everything through a screen. Golly, lockdown has showed us that. We need human interaction. And stores fulfill that in a way that other, other digital channels do not. As a result of that, though, we need to look at why are people coming into the store and therefore looking at the digital footprint that drove them in. But are we allowing them a place to socialize? Are we allowing them a place to maybe have a cup of coffee or 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 to learn something new and to engage? You know, you know, what what do things smell like? When you walk into a store, what does it smell like? We don't talk about that, but that sells things. If you walk into a grocery store and it smells of rotten food, you are not gonna shop there. Right? Now no one says let's make sure our stores don't stink. But let me tell you, if they do, people are going to leave, you know, and then there are stores that design themselves around scent. I mean, when you think about, you know, the Abercrombie model, you know, where it's like a club and it's very dark and they spray scent and you smell it and they spray it on the clothes. Right. Um, And if it doesn't appeal to you, it's not it's not for you. Right. I have a friend who's a store uh, experienced designer and he, he whenever I hear him speak I, and he uses Abercrombie, I start giggling because he says, young people love this. Grandma hates it. Well, well done. Grandma, you're not supposed to be buying these clothes. They're not designed for you. Right. So knowing who your customer is and then developing that true experience and that look, I say this all the time. There's no such thing as no design. There's only good or bad design. There's no such thing as no design. It could be very poorly done, but it's still designed. That goes for experiences in store, and it also goes with what we see on our laptops and what we see on our mobile devices. And we've got some industry leaders who design amazing interfaces and design amazing experiences, both in the physical space and in the in the digital space. And now that we are spending more time on our devices than ever before, we are starting to understand bad design and we walk away from it. I mean, you know, everyone, Amazon, one touch buy, right? Click to buy now and get it in a few hours. Oh my God, instant gratification. Why can't I do that with my utility bills? Why can't I do that with my food? Why can't I do that with my, you know, my restaurant food, my groceries, right? Why can't I? And we start to abandon these experiences and go straight to a one-touch buy environment. Now, people would argue, yeah, but you have to pay, have a prime membership. Yes, but now I get TV and video through that. Now, talk about agile and thinking outside of the box and thinking differently. They're a delivery company. At the end of the day, people think about them as I buy things for cheap and get them delivered to me. Well, why wouldn't they deliver you entertainment as well? 
So I, I look at loyalty programs um, that allow you to spend money to get a discount. That doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I spend money so I can get it immediately and I get some other things on the side, right? We're the same with data. We give up data when we perceive we're getting value for that. But if you're going to make me download an app and put in all this information, every time I log in, ask me answer 14 security questions just so I can go and look at birthday candles, I'm out of there. I just, you know... Likewise, if we walk into a shop and we can't find the birthday candles and nobody knows where we are, we roll our eyes and hope we can get parking at the next place we go to and we walk out the store. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's friction, right? It's, it's it friction is. that you don't want. That you you don't want it want. as seamless as you possibly can. Yeah. And in a world that seems full of friction and unseen friction with this virus, the last thing we want a hassle with is when we want to spend our money. <laughs> It's very true. I was doing it this morning on Amazon. Probably shouldn't have been, but there we are. No. Okay. Okay. Everyone else will catch up when they stop complaining about them and start really looking at what they're doing. Then you can, you you too can do this. Yeah. No, it's it's so true. But um, I know we're sort of coming towards the end of our time, but I did want to kind of pick your brains a little bit about automation because I know it's something that you talk a lot about and kind of thing. How do you how do you see automation its development? generally from a digital perspective? Well, I think it offers us an awful lot of exciting opportunities to allow our associates to contribute and think rather than to do repetitive tasks. Um, You know, processing uh, consumer requests, um, and I'm going to use some tech terms here, but, you know, when we talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning and automating, if someone sends an email saying, I'm trying to track my order, and they don't bother telling you the order number, a machine can quickly, well, I've got an email address. Is there order against that email address? The machine can then be taught, is that something that I can retrieve? And now I can go and look in logistics and get where it is, and I can compose response. Thank you for your query. Da, da, da. A person might just write back and say, could you send me your tracking number? Or could you send me your order number? Or whatever the piece is missing, well, rather than doing a bit of investigation. Because it takes time to do that investigation. So I've answered that query. I didn't help the customer, but I answered that query. So I met my quota of answering however many queries per hour, right? So when you automate it and you teach the machine, well, it's all data. So go find this, go find that, look at this, if this, then that. And then if you don't know, give that scenario to a person to say, did I do this right? Then the machine learns and we can keep doing that. So this is now being applied in the payment, purchase orders, the creation of purchase orders, the fulfillment of purchase orders, the payment, it's customer inquiries. So automating tasks that are fairly routine and fairly mundane allow us to then create workforces that are, well, first of all, some of them can be helping teach these machines, but others can be looking then Again, operationally, why do we have so many challenges against tracking things? Is there a problem? Let me look at the data that this automation is telling me and start to make prescriptive recommendations on what we can do differently. So it doesn't do anything but help, in my opinion. It doesn't do anything but help. And now it's only as good as the algorithm. And if you're not building this stuff properly and you're not then looking at this data and and, and allowing data scientists, giving them free reign to look at things that you consider to be challenges or problems, and they can look at patterns of data to help solve them. We don't, we still don't trust the data. We're still very leery of the data, you know, and and at the risk of going back to COVID that we talked about before, I mean, you know, data scientists globally agree what's needed, right? How long we need to lock down, how much we cannot socialize. But our governments interpret that data for a number of reasons. We're afraid, 
we, there's an economy to be stable here. So they don't want to trust the data. The same is true. If, if we are finding something's not working and the data is telling us and the scientists are telling us there's patterns in our business operations, then we need to look at that and not say, well, that must be wrong. The data's wrong and ignore it. So automation gives us the opportunity to look at things in ways that we would have never looked at them uh, before. And so, yeah, I, it, I don't see it as a threat. I see it as more coming. And I also see it as the only way we're going to be able to make sense of all of the data that we are now generating. If you just think for a moment about how much data is generated to get you into that store or to get you to look at that dress or to look at that ready meal deal or to get into that restaurant or that hotel, there's so many places for a person to try to track all of that. But if we automate that and then bring it back and say, and don't just look at how many click-throughs and how many emails were open. Those are old ways of looking at data. And they were valuable and they're still part of the equation, but they can be supplemented with so much more. And the only way to do that in real time is to do that in an automated way. And there are companies that specialize in this and do this in other industry sectors. And, and this is what we did at Burberry. We looked at other industry sectors and how were they analyzing things and reacting to market challenges? And then were those some of the things that we could do? So we didn't look at our peers. We looked at other industry leaders. And I think that that's really what, what retail and hospitality need to be doing now. Right. Nothing makes you feel better with a brand when you know they care, they share the values that you share, and they talk with you. They talk with you, not at you. And then you go back and you're quite loyal to that. So you might click on one click buy for something that you're not concerned about if someone, if you have a relationship with your toilet paper provider, but you'll be very different about that if it's your garden center. And they understand that you've had issues with, I don't know, slugs and they or deer or whatever it is that's bothering the garden. They can go tell deer resistant plants or here's things you can put down. Here's ways you can control the, the slugs or whatever the issue is, because you develop a relationship with that. And that's local and that's community. And I think brands that learn how to build that community and use automation and technology to start helping to create uh, personalized individual messages and, and, and really retain the loyalty of a consumer are the ones that are going to win. We can't do that without automation. Honestly, we just can't. Yeah. No, no, it's really, really interesting. I, I could listen to you talk all day about uh, retail and transfer. <laughs> and I could really talk all day. Again, another seamless link, Craig. So, Craig, I know we've um, we've got the pleasure of your company in February. You're going to be hosting a CXO digital networking experience for us. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what people who are joining that those events, what, what, what can they get from it? Yeah, I'm super excited about these because we've broken them down into three categories, haven't we? And it's not just for those of you if, who, who've enjoyed hearing me speak, and I hope you have. Um, it's not going to be me talking the whole time. I'm talking about dialogue, and we're going to have dialogue, right? So we've got industry professionals in. We will be discussing. So there will be panel discussions, people who have done things 
learn by lifting, as I call it, and not learn by study. Um, we're, we're looking across three sectors, aren't we? We're looking at human resources, which I think I'm so excited about because the people are the most important part of all this because we're people and we're people connecting to people. Um, we're also looking at finance because, well, let's face it, we're also trying to make money. And then, of course, dear to my heart, technology. So we've got three different streams, don't we? And we're going to be looking at, at this across all three of those. And it's those three when joined together and they collaborate. They're not done in silo where the winners win, where it all happens. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much. That's fantastic, Craig. Really, really interesting. And um, if, uh, if you enjoyed today's show, you can hear more. Subscribe on SoundCloud and, and we're now on Spotify as well. So I'm Steve Dunn. You've been listening to Craig Crawford. Thanks for listening to the Workday Podcast. Mm-hmm.